The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music History Today in-depth podcast for December 18th through the 24th. On this week's show, we discuss how the most famous piece of classical music didn't have such a revered beginning. Plus, in honor of my birthday on December 21st, We discussed two events that happened on that date, one extremely tragic and the other extremely strange, along with a history-making Christmas song. Sometimes in entertainment, projects that don't start out well end up becoming classics, especially in movies. Think the original Blade Runner, which made absolutely no money initially, but is considered one of the best science fiction movies ever made. The same thing happens in music, where a song that either failed on the charts or didn't even get released as a single turns into a classic. Think Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, which was never released as a single. This is what happened to what is considered the greatest piece of classical music, which started out roughly and in the end owes its longevity to, of all people, a music critic. In the early 1800s, Vienna, Austria was going through some tough times. The Napoleonic Wars were going on, and Vienna found itself under occupation by Napoleon's troops. One of those who found himself under occupation there was composer Ludwig von Beethoven. He also found himself with a more personal dilemma. He was going deaf. Time was of the essence, so off he went on a creative binge. He wrote a few symphonies and numerous concertos, bouncing back and forth between them all in a masterful piece of multitasking. He decided to do a concert with all of his new works on December 22, 1808. He rehearsed with an orchestra only once, which became a problem at the concert. That actually turned out to be one of many problems that evening. The first problem was that the place of the performance, the theater Underwine, was cold, actually frigid. Another problem was the length of the show. With eight pieces premiering that night, the concert clocked in at over four hours or roughly the same time as a Bruce Springsteen encore. Add to all of that a cranky, cold, frigid, actually, audience, 
and an orchestra that you only practiced with once. And things are going to be interesting at best to be nice about it. In fact, at one point, Beethoven had to stop the performance and start again because the orchestra played so poorly. Initial reaction to the concert was, as you can guess, at the very least, meh. After all, if you had to sit through a four-hour concert in a cold theater with a sucky orchestra, you wouldn't be too thrilled about the experience either. Things changed in 1810, though, when Beethoven's manuscripts of the music were released. It was at this time that a leading music critic got a hold of the manuscript and bestowed heap upon heap of praise to the music. Critic E.T.A. Hoffman said, quote, Radiant beams shoot through this region's deep night, and we become aware of the gigantic shadows which, rocking back and forth, close in on us and destroy everything within us except the pain of endless longing, a longing in which every pleasure that rose up in jubilant tones sinks and succumbs, and only through this pain, which, while consuming but not destroying love, hope, and joy, tries to burst our breasts with full-voiced harmonies of all the passions, we live on and are captivated beholders of the spirits. End quote. Okay, perhaps this guy was just a little bit on the overkill side. He could have easily have just said, you know what, I kind of liked it. Not a bad piece of work. But, you know, hey, whatever. It got the job done. Soon, the piece, with its four dominant opening notes, started getting played by orchestras everywhere. Over a century later, the BBC used those four notes as the opening to its broadcast because those notes came close to being Morse code for victory. Even artist Walter Murphy took the piece, gave it a disco beat, and turned that into a number one single on the pop charts back in the late 1970s. The most famous piece of classical music ever, with those four notes, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, premiered on December 22nd, 1808. And now, to the three events that happened on December 21st, which happens to be my birthday. First, one day, members of the group, the Four Tops, overslept after staying up all night for a recording session. Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols' wife, Nora, 
took too long packing for a trip. Paul Jeffries of Steve Harley and the Cockney Rebel had gotten married and was going on his honeymoon with his wife. All of them had a plane to, cr- to catch. The four tops and Johnny Rotten missed the flight. Paul Jeffries made the flight. And all of them would be affected by the events of that flight. On December 21st, 1988, Pan Am Flight 183 was to run its normal everyday route from Frankfurt, Germany to Detroit, Michigan, making stops in London, England, and New York City. The plane made the Frankfurt to London run without incident. In London, it took on passengers and luggage. At 6.04 p.m. local time, it left the terminal. At 6.25, it was wheels up off the runway and heading for New York City. At 7.02, air traffic control transmitted clearance to go over the ocean. There was no response. On the radar screen, what was one blip on the radar suddenly became five. Pan Am Flight 103 had exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing all 259 people on board, including Paul Jeffries and his new wife, and 11 people on the ground when the pieces from the debris rained down onto the village. A three-year investigation showed that two Libyan agents placed a bomb onto the plane, supposedly on orders from then-Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi. One of the agents was handed over to Scottish authorities in 1999. Gaddafi accepted responsibility for the attack in exchange for getting sanctions lifted that were hurting his country's economy. Unfortunately for him, he only got to enjoy the sanctions being lifted for a couple of years. When civil war broke out in Libya, Gaddafi tried to escape. Unfortunately for him, joint allied coalition forces were watching his vehicles from the air, which is, when you think about it, poetic justice, and, quote, accidentally, end quote, dropped a few bombs on his vehicles to impede his escape. Gee, I hate when that happens. It's like they just suddenly came out of nowhere. He was taken dazed from his destroyed vehicle, beaten up, and much like strong men and dictators before him, murdered by his own people. A very fitting end for the person who ordered the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103, which exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, with Paul Jeffries of Steve Harley and the Cockney Rebel and his wife on board, and that almost had Johnny Rotten and the four tops on board as well on December 21st, 
1988. And now to the second event that happened on December 21st, which was, well, here's a story. In 1970, a man who went by the name of John Burroughs handed a handwritten letter to White House guards requesting a visit with the President of the United States. Within a few days... He was actually granted that visit. The whole thing started a few days earlier when John's wife got upset with him for spending over $100,000 on 32 handguns and 10 Mercedes. Not quite sure if she was more upset with the Mercedes or the handguns. Probably the handguns, I would figure. John decided to get on the next available plane out of town and headed west to Los Angeles. While John was bored out of his mind in L.A., he had a crazy idea. See, John was a bit of a collector, as evidenced by the 32 handguns. But what he really loved to collect were law enforcement badges. There was one badge that he really wanted to get, a Drug Enforcement Agency badge or, as it was called back in the day, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. John figured that with the badge, he could go anywhere he wanted and bring his gun collection and drugs with him because, well, John had a bit of a drug problem. In fact, it ended up killing him. Idle hands being the devil's playthings, What was John to do but to try and get a badge from, of all people, the President of the United States? John got back on a plane and traveled to Washington, D.C. He wrote his note saying that he wanted to help with the anti-drug and counterculture wars that the President was waging. Then he and one of his assistants delivered the note to the White House guards to give to the President. He included the name he was staying under at the hotel and how long he'd be in town for. Then he waited. As it turns out, the note made its way to one of the president's aides, who was a huge fan of John's. A meeting was set up for December 21st in the morning. John and his assistants went to the White House where John was going to give the president a Colt 45 pistol as a gift. As you would figure, the gun was confiscated, of course. Then John went to the Oval Office without his buddies at first. There, the president met John for the very first time. John and the president had a good talk and had a lot of photos taken. One of those photos of the two of them shaking hands is one of the most requested photos in the National Archives that you can actually purchase. 
John spoke about his disdain for the counterculture and the Beatles calling them anti-American, to which the president agreed. Seeing as how the Beatles were actually British, I guess the whole anti-American thing was, well, whatever. John then asked for his narcotics badge, to which the president agreed to. John was allowed to bring his entourage in to meet the president, where they all received White House brooches and cufflinks, which were the big souvenir thing back in the day. During lunch in the White House later, John was presented with his very own narcotics badge. You may be wondering if there was any recording of the meeting other than a few photos. The answer is no. See, at the time, the president, Richard M. Nixon, did not have his famous recording machine installed, that very same recording machine that helped take down his presidency only four years later. As for John, the irony is that he hated the counterculture because they took drugs, while drugs took his life seven years after this meeting while dealing with another oval, the one that was his toilet, at Graceland. For you see, John Burroughs was the name that Elvis Presley used to use when he stayed in hotels to avoid the fans. When Elvis Presley, complete with a purple jumpsuit, met President Richard M. Nixon at the White House, December 21st, 1970. The third event that happened on December 21st concerns a woman who made music history that day. The holiday season has its share of good music. Hell, it wouldn't even be the holiday season without good music because it sets the mood for dealing with your racist relatives and wondering why you didn't get the gift that you really wanted if anybody even bothered to give you a gift, you cheap bastards. But I digress. In terms of Christmas music, there's plenty of different types of songs to choose from. You could go with the classic religious route with Handel's Messiah, I suppose, or even a choral group like, say, the song Silent Night. You could go the pop rock route with songs like Run, Run, Rudolph, or Run, Rudolph, Run, technically, Little Saint Nick, Happy Christmas, War is Over, Brew, Blue Christmas, Wonderful Christmas Time, maybe, even Step Into Christmas from Elton John. You could even go the charity Christmas route with Band Aids, Do They Know It's Christmas? In the past 30 years or so, though, there haven't really been many modern day Christmas songs that have endured. 
There's InSync's Merry Christmas, I suppose. There's Wham's Last Christmas, which really isn't a Christmas song. It's actually a breakup song, if anybody even listened to the actual lyrics. Last Christmas is about as much of a Christmas song as Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, and Trading Places are Christmas movies. They only take place during Christmas, people. They're not Christmas movies. Sorry. But again, I digress. The point is that there have been a bunch of artists that have put out Christmas albums, mainly thanks to this next artist, but there haven't been many Christmas songs that have become modern-day Christmas standards by these artists. This next one, though, is probably the biggest modern-day Christmas song classic since the 1990s. First, though, let's do some backstory on the artist. In 1988, Mariah Carey was just an aspiring singer with an amazing voice. What Mariah also had was a friend named Brenda K. Starr, who was an up-and-coming singer in her own right and had a few hits of her own at the time. Legend has it that Brenda invited Mariah to accompany her to a Columbia Records party in December. Mariah went along and brought a demo tape she was working on with her, and while at the party, she met Columbia Records head Tommy Matola. She handed him her tape, but didn't hand him her business card because, well, I'm sure Mariah had a great excuse. Tommy decided to listen to the tape on the way home from the party. After listening to the tape, he was interested in signing her to a record deal, but couldn't find her for two weeks to get her to sign. Remember, kids, this was 1988. There was no internet, no Google. All you had was a phone book. I'm actually just surprised that Tommy didn't call up Brenda K. Starr and ask her who her friend at the party was, but, you know, that really doesn't make for as good a story, I guess. Anyway, Mariah signed her record deal with Columbia Records and recorded her first album, Mariah Carey. Her debut live performance was on the Arsenio Hall show, which was just becoming the most talked about late night talk show at that time. After a couple of months getting weak sales, the album suddenly exploded and became a big hit. It spawned the singles Vision of Love, Someday, I Don't Want to Cry, and Love Takes Time. Both the album and all four of those singles hit number one. She also won two Grammys, including Best New Artist. She followed that album with two things. The first was a new album called Emotions. That album had the single Emotion, and while it sold well, it didn't sell as well as her debut album and thus was considered a failure. Something else also happened around that time. Tommy and Mariah had fallen in love and had gotten married. After Emotion, Mariah did an MTV Unplugged show and released the concert as its own album. That album did well and featured Mariah's version of the Jackson 5 hit, I'll Be There. In 1992, Mariah got to work on her third album, Music Box. Around the time of recording, 
the storybook marriage of Mariah and Tommy had turned into a nightmare and the cracks were beginning to show. Musically, Mariah wanted a more urban sound for this album. She still did did the ballads that she was known for, but she put on some more dance tracks, at least to get this album going. On August 31, 1993, the album Music Box was released. The album had hit songs Dream Lover, Hero, and Without You. Music Box was number one in 16 different countries, including America, was the second biggest album of 1993, the 124th biggest album of 1994, and was actually the 26th biggest album of the 1990s. All of that while getting some, at the time, less than favorable critical reviews. All of these albums laid the foundation for the rest of her career, solidifying her place in music history at that point. The rest of the 90s were pretty successful with more hit albums and singles, including the number one single, One Sweet Day, with Boys to Men, which held the record along with Daddy Yankee and Luis Fonzi's Despacito for the longest consecutive streak on top of Billboard singles chart with 16 weeks, until Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus obliterated the record with their song, Old Town Road. Then something happened, beginning at the beginning of the 21st century. Mariah became suddenly unpopular. It started when she acted in and made the soundtrack for the 2001 movie Glitter. Both her performance and the soundtrack were universally panned. Her 2002 follow-up, Charm Bracelet, fared no better. She had other issues as well, including a failed public romance and a very public mental health issue that the press wrongly made fun of. A lot of people in the, mu- in the music and tabloid media began to think that Mariah's career was finished a relic of the 1990s, along with flannel shirts, CDs, and Bill Clinton. Once she sought treatment for her mental health issues, she got to work on her next album, The Emancipation of Mimi. The most successful song on it was written by Mariah, Jermaine Dupri, and Jonta Austin. Other songwriting credits were given, as the production team also took samples from Bobby Womack's If You Think You're Lonely Now and The Deal's Two Occasions. That song, We Belong Together, was released on March 29, 2005 and became a smash hit. Not only did it hit number one on the Billboard singles chart, it became the first single to hold the top spot on nine different Billboard singles charts in the same week. It also spent 14 weeks at number one, a record only eclipsed now by about five other songs. Let us go back, though, to the 1990s, specifically 1994, now that we've covered at least three of her number one songs. During the beginning of the end of her first marriage, Mariah put out a Christmas album, Merry Christmas was released on October 28, 1994. On this album, you will find our history-making song. 
All I Want for Christmas is You, was written and produced by Mariah and Walter Afanasieff and was recorded at the Hit Factory Music Studio in New York City in August of 1994. The song almost didn't come about as Mariah was just beginning to hit her stride in the music industry and putting out a Christmas album was thought to be something you did when your career was actually on its way down. What was thought of as fact was actually a golden opportunity because not many artists put out Christmas albums back in the early 1990s. Mariah and Walter went to work writing songs. They wanted an upbeat song to go along with the more traditional Christmas music. They originally recorded the song with live drums and other instruments, but hated it and reworked the song. All I Want for Christmas is You was released on the same day as the Merry Christmas album, but only as a music video and a radio single. It was not released as a record or a CD single. During the first year on the charts, it did very well on the singles chart in America, going to number 12 and to number 6 on the Hot Adult Contemporary chart. Same basic thing happened worldwide. As the years went on, though, the festive tune became something of a cult Christmas classic, always doing great from November to early January when people finally get sick of listening to Christmas music. Yet, as popular as this song was for over 25 years, Billboard magazine chart rules regulated Christmas songs to the holiday music charts and kept holiday songs off of the top 100 pop singles chart, denying All I Want for Christmas is You a crack at getting to number one. In 2019, that all changed. Late in 2019, Billboard finally allowed holiday music to be included with pop music for its Hot 100 singles chart. On December 21st, 2019, exactly 25 years after consistently being on the charts every holiday season, All I Want for Christmas is You finally hit number one. That day, many records were broken, including the longest climb to number one at 25 years. Because the Christmas songs stopped being counted after the first week of January, the song broke another record when it was also the number one song during the first week in January in 2020. It became the last number one of the 2010s and the first number one of the 2020s, making Mariah Carey the first artist to have a number one song in now four different decades, the early 1990s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and now technically the 2020s. And yes, it took Billboard changing their rules in order to get Mariah her number one single in the past decade. But you know what? Hey, a number one single 
is a number one single. Mariah Carey's contemporary Christmas standard, All I Want for Christmas is You, broke records when it hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart on December 21st, 2019. And that is it for the Music History Today in-depth podcast for December 18th through the 24th. Everyone have a safe and hopefully happy holiday. We will be back next week for the New Year's Eve edition of the Music History Today in-depth podcast. For more music podcasts, check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, TuneIn, Podbean, HubHopper, OnlyFans, and Patreon, all under Music History Today. You can find us on our website at www.cjbtproductions.com. Our email address is musichistorytoday at gmail.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter at CJBT Productions. Our Facebook page is Music History Today. Also, our SoundCloud is Music History Today. And you can find us on YouTube by searching Music History Today. This has been a CJBT Productions podcast. Thank you very, very much for listening.